we continue our journey through this wonderful book of Old Testament scripture, we find ourselves this morning in Daniel chapter 3. Hear now the word, the living God. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Living God, it is in your temple of the church that we have gathered this day. It is through your temple, the living Christ, that we worship you this day. It is through his voice, inscripturated for us in the word, that we hear from you this day. We pray, O Lord, that you would make of us a pure and holy and righteous temple. We pray that you might remind us of our true worship in Christ. Now we ask for your blessing as we walk through the pages of your word. Help us by your spirit that the preaching of the word of Christ might be the word of Christ to the people of Christ. In Jesus name. Amen. The earth has always been a temple. The world, the cosmos, has always been a place of worship. All you need to do is read the first few chapters of the book of Genesis and you will see that very early on, even before the fall, the Garden of Eden was a type of temple. It was a place where God was to be worshipped and served, where God's priests, namely Adam, were to lead in the things of God through his voice. Very quickly, the temple that was Eden was ransacked, if you will, by the serpent. And God, from the very beginning, always had a plan to bring about redemption and renewal and right worship among his people. But the earth didn't cease to be a temple even after the fall. You see, Christians are not the only ones with religious devotion and patterns of worship. What is it like? When the world goes to worship. That's our question for today as we look at Daniel chapter 3. What is it like when the world goes to worship? 
I would submit to you that I think that we could answer that question in at least three ways in Daniel chapter 3. For in Daniel chapter 3, we see the world, not believers, but the world going to worship. And here's what I mean. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, we see that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, the, the greatest king of the world at this point, the greatest majesty and sovereign power, humanly speaking, of the world at this point, some 500 to 600 years before the birth of Christ. He sets up an image, an image of gold, and calls the known world to worship it. You see, the earth has always been filled with religious devotion and patterns of worship, even after the fall. What is ironic is that in chapter 3, we meet this image and it is made of gold. Those of you that were here last week will be reminded that Nebuchadnezzar himself was given a dream. In fact, he was going to kill all kinds of people unless someone could tell him the dream and then interpret it. And finally, Daniel comes to the forefront and interprets the dream after telling the king what it was. And the dream went like this. There are going to be four kingdoms. And then God is going to set up a fifth kingdom, not made with hands, that will rule forever. The interpretation of the dream, of course, is that these four kingdoms were different kinds of earthen material. You can read of them in chapter 2. The first kingdom was Babylon, ruled by Nebuchadnezzar. And what was the earthen material that symbolized Babylon? Gold. Then, of course, the Persians would come. Then the Greeks Then the Romans and the scripture says in the time of these kingdoms, a kingdom will be set up, Christ and his kingdom that will rule and reign forever and ever. So with seeming religious conviction, Nebuchadnezzar blesses the God of heaven. But then he turns around and he creates an object of worship made of gold. What happens When the world goes to worship, what is it like? Well, number one, there is a false temple. You note takers could write it this way. The false temple of the world. The false temple of the world. Boys and girls, a temple is just a building where people would gather to worship. Nebuchadnezzar appears at the end of chapter two to acknowledge and maybe even worship the living God. But his heart has not truly been changed. For in the very next verse, we read that the king made an image of gold. In the first seven verses of Daniel chapter three, this image of gold is mentioned no less than six times. Isn't it interesting how Nebuchadnezzar sets up worship, sets up patterns of devotion? He takes the revelation of God, the dream in chapter two, and turns it into a false idol for his own glory. Can you think of any revelation of God, any symbols that God has given in his word that have been turned into idols for the glory of human beings? You see, the world has always been a place of worship. A place where people revere and honor and celebrate and are devoted to certain things. You know, sometime after the Garden of Eden, We read of the story of a bunch of people in the land where Nebuchadnezzar would one day set up this idol of worship. In the same region, we read of people who built a statue. 
Turn back to Genesis chapter 11. Don't know if you've ever made the connection between the words Babel and Babylon. But in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, we read this. God had told all peoples, spread out, multiply and have dominion. And what do they do? 11.4 of Genesis. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. The world has always been a place of worship. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Then thousands of years later, Nebuchadnezzar would come along and build another statue. And in the same region, make a name for himself. But should this surprise us? Isn't this what the book of Romans says really is the true story of humanity after the fall? Romans 1 verse 25, we exchange the glory of the invisible God for created things. But look at this false temple of worship. There is an image, there is an idol, there is a God with a little g, boys and girls. Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom and his own power and his own glory. That's what people are to bow to. But notice in verse 3 that this is a who's who of a worship party. This isn't a small congregation in the temple of Babylon. Look at verse 3. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together. Imagine that. All of the governing officials, all of the rulers of the most powerful monopoly companies are all gathering together in the same place with one voice to say, this is what we say ought to be revered. Does that sound familiar? The world has always been a place of devotion and worship. And notice, even in verse 5, there's a false call to worship. Do you know what a call to worship is? Every Lord's Day, morning and evening, we have worship services. And in the very beginning of the bulletin, there is this phrase, call to worship. See, a call to worship is when... The word of God being read calls and commands the people of God to worship. Come to the house of the Lord. And usually this morning it was from the book of Exodus, but usually from the book of Psalms or some other place. It's the voice of the Lord calling God's people to come and worship. But here in the temple, the false temple of Babylon, what is there? There's a call to worship. Notice in verse five, we read these words. At the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image. Have you ever thought about the fact that the call to worship in a Christian worship service is one of the things that would cause Satan to shudder the most? It is the cry, it is the trumpet of the voice of God calling God's people. Today, now is the time to come worship at the feet of the true and living God. That's the call to worship. Come! Christ has opened the door. Come and worship the living God. Well, here in the false temple of Babylon, what were they doing? Wait for the call to worship. And when it comes, bow the knee. The world has its own liturgy. There's a false religion here, isn't there? There's worship, there's devotion, there's obedience, whether desired or pushed upon others. 
And there's a rhythm, there's a liturgy. Every time you hear this, you are to come and you are to bow down. Liturgy just means an order. We have a liturgy. What's our liturgy here in worship? God calls his people to worship. We respond by praying, Lord, give us what we need to worship you. We sing in song. Lord, we praise your name. Then we hear God's word read from the Old and the New Testament. We pray prayers of confession. Then we hear the words of Scripture reminding us that Christians have pardon in Christ, even for the sins this past week. Then we praise his name. Today we actually sang a song. Praise, O my soul, the King of heaven. Then Christ speaks through his word and through his supper. And then we respond. And at the very end of it all, what does God do? Through his word, he says, you are my blessed people. That's our liturgy. But the world has its own liturgy, doesn't it? When you hear the sound that we produce, that we have decided is appropriate, you are to come and you are to pay homage, you are to give devotion to these things. In Babylon, it was an idol to the glory of the state and its king. In other time periods, it's been other kinds of statues. What statues exist today that we are called by secular peoples to bow down before? Well, notice what happens in the rest of our story. Verse 8, we pick up where we left off. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, Babylonians, came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, lute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Notice that there are some in this worshiping band who accuse three individuals, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, otherwise known as Daniel's friends. Doesn't the world demand religious obedience to what it worships? What are the idols of our day? Our own freedom to decide our sexuality and gender. Our own comfort, even if it means we desire no longer to carry a, born, a, a child to be born within our womb. The ability to do what we want to do. And to throw off authority. To worship ourselves through the idols of pleasure, convenience. And the world says, these are what we should bow down to. In fact, if you don't, we'll tell our companies to do these kinds of things to you. If you don't, you won't have a job. You won't be in government. You won't on and on and on it goes. You see, the world has its own kind of religious devotion. And notice, these men didn't put up a sign and say, we are picketing you, O King Nebuchadnezzar. 
They didn't try to get a political party to rise up to overthrow King Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't even talk of trying to take the Mosaic law and turn it into a new kind of law that they should govern Babylon with. But what did they do? They just were faithful to God. They were just faithful to God. And the world noticed. You see, sometimes we read the scripture and we think we have to do great and daring things for the living God. When all he calls us to do is to obey his word. Wow. Notice we get some theology in this false temple, don't we? Look at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And then notice the theology of the false temple of the world here. And who is the God who can deliver you from my hands? It's a theological statement. I am God. And if there is another God, he is not going to be powerful enough to save you from my hands. The world has its own view of what is divine. So in these first 15 verses of Daniel chapter 3, we see the false temple of the world, don't we? It's an abominable temple. It looks nothing like God's design for worship. And yet there's worship, devotion, and liturgy here. And a call obedience. But you know, the second thing that we see in our quest to answer the question, what is it like when the world goes to worship? We see, secondly, the required response of God's true people. The required response of God's true people. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Remember, this is the most powerful man in all the world. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, crucial phrase. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. You see, we see the required response of God's true people. Notice their response. Doesn't it sound a little bit like Esther's statement in Esther 4.16? This is what I'm going to do. I will go into the king, and if I perish, I perish. Or the apostles... In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we must, what? Obey God rather than men. It's a steady refrain throughout the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. God's people follow God's word and God's ways in the midst of the false worship of the world. But these few verses we get here give us quite a bit of theology of the true and living God. 
They believe that God is able, but not required to save them. This is important. They're willing to serve the living God, whether or not the circumstances go in a comfortable direction. They believe, that is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they believe that God was able, but not required to save them. Secondly, they believe that God is to be obeyed and honored regardless of the circumstances. There were no situational ethics here at the door of the temple of Babylon. They believe that God is to be obeyed and honored. Thirdly, they believe that the world doesn't get to determine how God's people worship and what God's people believe. See, this is part of the required response of God's people. We don't know all the details, but I like to think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego simply says, no, we're not going to go to the false temple. And they went about their lives worshiping the true and living God. And eventually, they were noticed. There was no fanfare. Sinclair Ferguson in his commentary speaks to the fact that these two didn't have the need, these three didn't have the need to kind of create all of these kind of histrionics about their faithfulness. No, they were just faithful. Samuel Rutherford writing hundreds of years ago wrote these words, let us be faithful and care for our own part, which is to do and suffer for him. And lay Christ's part on himself and leave it there. Duties are ours. Events are the Lord's. End quote. You see what Rutherford is saying? God gets to determine the circumstances. God is worthy to be praised if we burn in the fire or if we're rescued. We see the false temple of the world. And we see the required response of God's people. What else do we glean when we consider what it is like when the world goes to worship in its own false temples? Well, there's at least one other thing, and that is the true comfort of Christ in our very midst. The true comfort of Christ in our very midst. Look what happens. They say, we will not obey you in this matter, O king. And we will leave to God whether he saves or whether we perish. Pick up in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. And the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. I don't want to make too much of symbolism of numbers in the book of Daniel, but seven times And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Boys and girls, they make a stand that they're only going to worship God. They're not going to worship the false image. And can you imagine the soldiers, the strongest men that Nebuchadnezzar has come and begin to tie them up, to bind them. They're going to be thrown in the hottest fire imaginable. Verse 21, these, then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. 
Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The flames were so hot, boys and girls, that the men who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace were killed because of the heat. What will happen to these three? We could put a period here and say we don't need to know unless God desires to tell us because everything that is true and right about the theological understanding has already been said. God is to be worshipped whether we live or whether we die. God in his mercy has seen fit to tell us what happened next. Verse 23, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? We're not told all of the details, but somehow you could see what was burning in the middle of the furnace. Wood, metal, whether there was a window, a door, you could see in. Nebuchadnezzar could see in. They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look at verse 25. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. The third thing that we learn about what happens when the world worships its false gods is that the living Christ comforts his people in the midst of it all. Verse 25, there is that phrase, and the fourth is like the son of God. Some translations render it a son of the gods. Who is this fourth person? Well, there are in the scholarship two main answers. It's an angel that God sent, or it is the angel of the Lord, the living God himself, the second person of the Trinity. Matthew Poole, the Puritan of the 1600s, writing on this passage, chooses the second. He says this, quote, a divine, most beautiful and glorious countenance, either of a mere angel or rather of Jesus Christ the angel of the covenant, who did sometimes appear in the Old Testament before his incarnation, before he put on flesh and was born and placed in a manger in Bethlehem, boys and girls. And then Poole gives all of the examples where that happened. It's going to be too quick for you to write them all down. Email me this week if you want all the references. Genesis 12, 7, Genesis 18, 10, verse 13, 17, 20, Exodus 23, Exodus 33, Joshua 5, Proverbs 8, Genesis 19:24, Exodus 3, Acts even discusses such a reality. If this is an angel sent of God, it is God's comfort sent from Christ's hands nonetheless. But brothers and sisters, I believe that this was the pre-incarnate Son of God. Walking in the midst of the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Did we not throw in three? Who is the fourth? He looks like a son of God. These three men knew the fellowship of Christ in the midst of the fiery furnace. 
The world in its worship had gotten to the point that the sacrifices that they were going to make were the lives of believers. Does that sound familiar? All over this world, it's happening. It's happened over the last 2,000 years. By God's sheer mercy, it's not happening here in this country yet. But the sacrifices of the temple of the world are often the lives and the blood of God's people. And right here, in the midst of this false temple, as God's people give the required response of obedience to the word of God, there is the true comfort of Christ right in the very midst. Well, verse 26 continues the story. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Now there is a new name being spoken in the temple of Babylon. Servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And then here's the long list of the who's who. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together. And they saw these men on whose body the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected. And the smell of fire was not on them. Notice the description. Not only were they not injured. It was like they hadn't even been through the flames. Not a single hair on their head was missing. It's almost as if the living God knows the very number of the hairs of our head. And without the very movement of his own hand, as it were, not one single hair of our bodies will be lost. The particular Baptist preacher and commentator of the early 1700s, John Gill, wrote these words. Afflictions do not hurt the people of God, not to their persons, which are safe in Christ and to whom he is a hiding place and covert. As from the storm and tempest, so from the force of fire that it shall not kindle upon them to hurt them, nor to their graces, which are tried, refined and brightened hereby. Faith is strengthened. Hope is encouraged and love made to abound. All the afflictions of the saints are in love and are designed for good and do work together for good to them that love God. They are sometimes for their temporal and often for their spiritual good and always work for them an exceeding weight of glory. End quote. Nebuchadnezzar takes notice. It's like they haven't even been in the fire. Verse 28, we pick up. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word, frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made an ash sheep because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Right motive, wrong response. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Notice what Nebuchadnezzar says. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent his angel. Doesn't this remind us 
the precious promises of Scripture. Just listen to a few of these promises. Psalm 34. Psalm 34, verses 7 and 8. The angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. This very lyric of Psalm 34 became true very palpably for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. For the living Christ came and stand, stood in their midst, offering comfort as the world worshipped in its false temple. But brothers and sisters, perhaps even more startling words of comfort are given to us in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, we are not called to stand on the word of God without the promise that God is for those for whom Christ died. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. The experience of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego is not an experience that we have physically, but it is an experience that we have every day spiritually. Christ, who bled and died for us, believers, intercedes for us even now. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, For your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing to include King Nebuchadnezzar shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ our Lord. You see, the Christ who appeared in human form in Daniel some 500 years later would be born of a virgin and would take to himself a human nature, truly God and now truly man. And he would live among us And he would flesh out all of the righteousness that we are required to flesh out and don't do. He'd live a perfect life, a God-glorifying life. Not one single thing could be said in the court of heaven against this Son of God. And he would go to the cross, and as he died there on the cross, God, the triune God, the living God, would pour out the judgment for the sins of all the people who would ever trust in Christ onto him. And he would pay for it. He would atone for it. He would bear the shame and condemnation and punishment for it. He would be a substitute for sinners. He would die. That's what sin deserves. The wages of sin is death. He would die. And on the third day, he would be raised. And the message of Scripture is simple. All who have faith in him, all who receive him by faith alone, 
will receive credit for his righteous life and will have all of their sins thrown onto Christ on the cross. Will be seen as God's own people. And this is what we call the gospel. The gospel brings with it precious promises for God's people. Promises like, I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. What if they bring the sword, Lord? I will never leave you nor forsake you. What if they bring unemployment because we we stand on your word? I will be with you. What if they teach our children horrible things in schools? I will be with you. What if they throw us in the fire for not going to their temple? I will be with you. See, we see that when the world worships, there's the true comfort of Christ in the very midst for God's people. A missionary hero is a man by the name of John Payton. He had a very fruitful ministry in Scotland in the late 1800s, but sensed a call to go plant churches among cannibals in an unreached people group down near Australia. And his autobiography is harrowing. All of the times that he was this close to death and didn't die. All of the wonderful work of God by his spirit among the Scottish Presbyterian who went to share the words of Christ among cannibals. And there was once an incident where he's in a tree hiding as native cannibals are all around with weapons ready to kill him. And John Payton gives words like these in his autobiography, quote, trials and hairbreadth escapes strengthened my faith and seemed only to nerve me for more to follow. And they did tread swiftly upon each other's heels without that abiding consciousness of the presence and power of my Lord and Savior. Nothing else in all the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. Some of you might be able to relate to those words. His words, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the earth, became to me so real that it would not have startled me to behold him. As Stephen did, gazing down upon the scene, it is the sober truth that I had my nearest and dearest glimpses of the face and smile of my blessed Lord in those dread moments when musket, club, or spear was being leveled at my life. Oh, the bliss of living and enduring as seeing him who is invisible. You know, as we consider what worship is like in the false temple of the world, we're reminded of Nebuchadnezzar's words and observation in verse 27 of our text. The hair of their head was not singed. Nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. For some, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or John Payton in the 1800s, for some, this will occur physically in this life. But for every single Christian, there is coming a day when it will be clear before all to include the Nebuchadnezzars of this world 
That whatever they went through, as they sought to worship only the true and living God, the hair of their head will not be seen as singed. Nor will heaven see their garments affected by the flames of this earth. Nor will the smell of fire be on them. But they will be arrayed in righteous robes given to them by the Lamb, and they will be seen as those for whom He died, those whose very hairs are numbered. And the flames and stench of this world will not be on them. Let us pray. Almighty God, we ask that You give us the required response when the world gives its call to worship lesser gods. Remind us of the comfort of Christ as we seek by His grace to take a stand and worship You alone, to live lives with You alone as our God. And Lord, if we perish or if we live, may we with these three of old say, the living God alone is worthy. Help us to this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.